0: Welcome to Deckard's LIBORCast, where industry leaders come to talk LIBOR transition. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Jones from Deckard, and this is a conversation with Crexie about LIBOR. This is the fifth Libor cast in our series, and we're delighted today to have uh, Lisa Pendergast and Syra Berkey from Crexie here to um, share with us their thoughts about the uh, impending demise of LIBOR and the consequences thereof. So let me turn it over to uh, Lisa and Syrah to have a say a few things, and then we'll ask some questions.
1: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Rick, and uh, thanks for the team at Deckert for really all the hard work that you folks have done on the LIBOR messaging and helping with uh, the many things that we've done in the Securitization Working Group for the ARC over the last uh, several years now. Um, we've, uh, we've been at it for quite some time. And it has become somewhat of a full-time job um, for the staff, including Saira, and I have to mention also Raj Adasani. Saira and Raj work significantly on the LIBOR issue um, and have been doing a good amount of uh, work just like you guys have in terms of um, podcasts and webinars in um, events where we allow our members to kind of relate to us what's working, what's not, as it relates to um, the transition. So as you know, I just wanted to remind everyone that CREPSI is a member of the Alternative Reference Rate Committee, which is the ARC. It's comprised of private market participants, including banks, asset managers, insurers, trade associations, and uh, official sector ex-officio members. Um, In my mind, uh, initially, I have to say, we weren't sure exactly where the ARC was going to go, Um, but I think it was a very wise decision on the part of the Fed. Uh, There are many members that are members of the ARC, um, CREPSI members, that are also members of CREPSI and have been for quite some time. And that blend of official sector and real participants in the market who live and breathe this every day, I think, has been hugely helpful This started in November 2014, when the ARC was initially formed. Its objective was to identify a replacement rate, and it did that in June 17, choosing the secured overnight funding rate, which is SOFR. Um, In March 2018 is when we come in. The ARC asked CREPS to co-chair the Securitization Working Group, and there were quite a number of responsibilities. Frankly, I don't think we knew what we were getting ourselves into when we started, we're glad we were involved, but there, there was a lot of work to do, including developing triggers from moving from LIBO to SOFR to developing fallback language to use when that occurred, agreeing on a spread adjustment, which was no easy task, to apply to reduce the potential for value transfer when you move from LIBO to SOFR. And then most recently, best practices were developed. And what's important there, and what I would ask lots of uh, our members to take a look at, was that those best practices include hard dates to meet during the transition. Um, challenges were really just the, the number of asset classes under the Securitization Working Group roof. Clearly our focus is commercial and multifamily lending. And so uh, really that breaks down into CMBS and the SASB component of CMBS, and then also CRE CLOs. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to Sarah if she wants to say a few introductory comments.
2: Thanks, Lisa. So Lisa had mentioned that Some of our real, you know, detailed work started um, back in 2018 when the ARC stood up, you know, many of its cash product working groups, including the Securitization Working Group. And at that time, I was actually at SFA, which was co-chairing with Crepsey, the Securitization Working Group. So that was how I came to know Lisa. So that was a great and opportune moment. (laughs) Um, So... You know, as Lisa had mentioned, we have been, you know, since 2018, working very, very sort of diligently on the LIBOR transition with the goal of ensuring that our members at the end of the day are ready to move away from LIBOR and, you know, choose a type of replacement rate that, that works for, for them on an organizational uh, basis and make sure their systems and operations are ready to go and, uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to kind of getting through the next year and a half or so to the end of 2021 and, and uh, helping our membership get there with as seamless as possible of a transition.
0: Great. Well, thank you both for, for that. Um, plenty to talk about here. I, I want to start off by asking you generally what you think are the biggest issues confronting the commercial real estate securitization industry. I know what keeps me up at night. Oddly enough, I think the pandemic has exhausted our bandwidth over the past four or five months. And the issue has, had, except amongst the consigliere, kind of dropped off the top ten worry list. And, and it's going to pop back up sometime in this fall, and we're going to be really close to transition, which kind of scares me. But, you know, I need something new to worry about. So what are you folks hmm. mostly worried about when you look at the LIBOR transition confronting us?
1: <laughs> okay. So where to begin? Um, I'm with you in that there's always a good amount of concern here, just giving the breadth of this market um, some $200 trillion, right, in U.S. LIBOR-based contracts. For us, it's a considerably smaller, maybe 200, you know, billion in agency and private label, cross DC, BCRE, CLOs, and, and a good portion of that is the GSEs. You now, to some extent, Rick, I think there has been concerted efforts to address um, you know, COVID is no excuse, kind of, we all need to move forward at uh, year-end 2021, LIBOR ceases, so don't stop working. Um, for us, though, in, in in the commercial space, and this is not, uh, I don't take it lightly at all, um, but the nature of CMBS, securities and, and loans, sort of lightens the concern a little bit. We generally have shorter maturities than some of the other asset classes that exist out there. I'm thinking more on the, um, on, say on single family. Um, we have a lot more flexibility, um, in terms of term and prepayment and refinanceability. And, you know, into the good, I think before COVID struck, we had made a good amount of progress, um, in terms of incorporating some form of SOPA fallback language into most of our transactions. Yes, there are variations and and those might be things that keep you up at night, but we've really encouraged lenders and securitizers to be as uh, consistent as possible. It certainly would help them not only with their borrowers but with investors and traders in the capital markets. I mean, I think about sitting at a trading desk and you're getting a bid list and you have no idea what this thing looks like because fallback language looks different on one deal versus the next deal. You know, for those that fail to incorporate the appropriate fallback language, again, there are open prepay periods that allow you to to kind of correct for that in a more dramatic way for sure. But I guess as a trade association, Rick, and I'll, I'll finish this up quickly, but my main concern is that have we done enough to help prepare members for the transition? We really need to know that they have the necessary tools, um, that I think they have been working on and have been a part of all of our working groups, so that's a good thing. And as I said, I think the fallback language, we are seeing a growing level of consistency in terms of its approach and, and particularly how it relates to both loan and transaction documents. Um, but COVID-related, yes, you know, the fact that you see COVID-related delinquencies and the like uh, is really keeping um, our servicing community as well you know, very, very busy. But I have to say they've done a a pretty amazing job up to now and a lot of folks I think are ready to move forward generally speaking.
2: Yeah, and I would I would add to that, I mean, I think Rick, what your question actually points to one of our very significant concerns, which is around timing. You know, you had mentioned that I'm sort of fallen off the top ten things to worry about in this COVID environment, but you know, it's kind of funny, um, what we're hearing from regulators is that it has not fallen off their list of things to be concerned about. I think even, for example, like the Bank of England had a, a slide or a page on its website because listing the things that COVID has delayed, but LIBOR was probably one of the only things that it has not delayed. So, they're making it increasingly clear, um, the regulators are making it increasingly clear that despite COVID, the the LIBOR cessation date is not at all likely to to change. You know, I think folks might be familiar with comments coming out from some of the key policymakers. You know, I would just point, for example, to Edwin Schoeling-Ladder, who's the head of market policy at the FCA, which, of course, is LIBOR's um, regulator. And he came out and said earlier this summer that You know from his perspective LIBOR will continue until the end of 2021 but and this definitely caught people's attention that as soon as this year 2020 November December they might come out and make the announcement that you know LIBOR will indeed be going away at the end of 2021. So you know practically that's not very different from where we are now but I think in terms of really lending clarity and kind of finality to uh, folks um, understanding what's going on with LIBOR would make it very clear that LIBOR will indeed be uh, ceasing to exist by the end of 2021. Um, you know, we are seeing regulators in the U.S. also really starting to reinforce this. So again, over the summer, you know, we had the SEC come out with a you know, a risk alert, you know, indicating that their Office of Compliance will be definitely considering LIBOR in their examinations. They included, a, you know, several questions that registrants should be expected to uh, be asked during these examinations. And then the banking regulators via the FFIEC, you know, also put out a, you know, fairly lengthy statement talking about their focus on LIBOR. And again, you know, reinforcing areas that they will be focused on related to libraries transition and that they will be particularly focused on organizations that they think are not far along enough. So we're definitely kind of seeing the heat being turned up this past summer, despite COVID. Um, And I think, you know, it's really helpful to point folks to uh, the best practices as Lisa mentioned earlier. You know, the ARC put out, you know, a lot of work put out a uh, document on best practices, really, which were you know date-based, you know goals for folks working on a LIBOR transition in terms of how to really get yourself to the end of 2021 ready to transition away from LIBOR. So definitely would encourage folks to take a look at that. And just as an example, there are four key best practices. You know, fallback language should be included in any new securitization uh by you know June of this year so we were even past that deadline vendors should be ready by the end of this year you know no new deals with libor starting you know June of next year so some really really concrete uh deadlines for oh, uh, folks
0: the more, pay more pay. We hear, the more we hear from the government reminding us that we, they really mean it and it's going to end uh the more <laughs> I, I, I worry that they're they're telling us so the voce that they're afraid that the market is not ready um, mm-hmm. Which is interesting. I mean, your comments may be generally feel pretty good. I'll probably sleep better at night. Uh, sh- should I be disbanding my litigation team for, on LIBOR because this is all gonna be easy?
1: I would do that, no. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, I'm making a note, not, not get rid of LIBOR. Yes, you know,
1: don't I, do I've that, said, yes.
0: I've um, been repeatedly yes. <laughs> in print in the past that, uh, that you know, LIBOR transition would be tough, but uh, assuming we don't have a recession, it's doable, but now I guess we're gonna have a recession to make things even more complicated. So is your views informed, Lisa, inspired by what we're hearing from our members? Are our members reporting that they're broadly ready? Are the big banks ready? Are the small banks ready? How about the alternate lenders? Uh, Are we hearing that they've got this under control? Yes, I
1: mean, we're hearing that there's a good movement, that a lot of the work has been done, that the documents are reflecting the triggers and the fallback language that has been prescribed. uh, I think that what we know and what Sarah um, alluded to and and actually detailed earlier was that you do have a lot of regulators focused on the banks, Um, and so it's very likely that you know quarterly examinations are going to start looking at uh, you know sort of how banks are handling the transition, and then for the non-banks, I mean, I, I we get more questions from them than anyone else, which tells me that there's been a a good concerted effort to get this right. Um, I do think, though, that it's not so much the intent of what folks are are, have done and are prepared to do go forward. There's still, you know, some very significant unanswered questions out there. For some, the idea that we are going to, on the cash markets, um, compound in advance which we think is the, the, the easier of the options out there in terms of operationalizing it. Um, and yet the derivatives market are going to compound um, in arrears because they think that's a better sort of calculation that better captures the forward-looking um, market. And yet there's basis risk there, right? So it really is going to be an interesting thing to see if we can't somehow uh, surmount that and, and move forward. I think one of the things that we've been doing is taking our cues to the extent that we have the GSEs who also decided to compound in advance. And the compounding is just a methodology to utilize before we get to a term rate. So to the extent that we follow the course of the GSEs, um, one of the largest mortgage markets in the world, we think that that's a better course to, uh, to move forward on. And yet it doesn't remove the fact that there are obstacles like the derivatives market. So when you're looking to hedge, when you're looking to uh, purchase caps, there's a mismatch. There's a basis risk there that exists. So I, I think the preparedness is one issue. I think the issues that we may confront um over the next period as we really prepare and then start to move towards, you know, seeing, you know, even if soaper hasn't been uh, Live or end the year of 2021. Let's see how the SOFR-based things that we've produced so far behave, and how do they work when it comes to things like that basis risk and hedging and caps, and how do you sort of signal that to, for example, your your borrowers to some extent. We had a question from a servicer Rick, where the question was: Say if your document allows for compounding in advance uh, in the absence of a term rate. If it's silent on what happens when that term rate develops over the course of the loan, what do you do? And either way, what you're going to find is that there is some basis risk and that risk is probably going to be borne to some extent by borrowers. Um, uh, That's additional funds to them. And I suspect that that's not going to be a happy borrower when that occurs.
0: Yeah, speaking of borrowers um, and and it's a good segue into uh, let, let's assume for a moment that both our big and small lenders are sort of on the path, and the alternate lending space is on the path. Are the borrowers on the path?
1: It's a good question.
0: <laughs> I have not, as of right now. I have not, as of yeah. right now, seen any underlying loan document written with SOFR as the primary current interest rate. So we're still right. head based. Cool,
2: right? right. And then I think once, you know, what I, you know, Lisa mentioned um, you know, taking cues from the GSCs mm-hmm. and I think the GSCs are starting to really focus on making sure that everything is converting over to SOFR. So they have deadlines this year in terms of end dates around accepting, you know, new LIBOR loans and having dates by which everything has to be a sofa loan. And then on the consumer side, I mean, ARC has an entire uh, work stream devoted to the consumer effort. And, you know, I think it started out with a lot of education um, with sort of borrower trade groups and other advisory groups just to get folks up to speed. And then there's been a lot of work in terms of, um, revising documentation and getting it ready for, you know, SOFR products. So, the, so from the arts perspective, I think they've, they've done a lot of work along those lines.
0: Great. And you, you mentioned that, uh, that you know, term SOFR would be the ideal and where presumably we'll all ultimately end up. Uh, what are we hearing from um, the Fed on on the likelihood of a term product being available before LIBOR sunsets here?
2: Yeah, I mean that is well, I think a million dollar question. Uh, a lot of folks are waiting for the term rates, I think in securitization land. You know, a lot of folks don't feel comfortable issuing and so far until there is a term rate. I know the Fed is is working really hard to try to make sure there are term rates available, but a lot of it hinges on the underlying liquidity in the in the SOFR derivatives market. So, waiting to see how far and how fast that liquidity develops.
1: There is this whole idea that as you know, you really start to see SOFR derivatives pick up and, and what are some of the triggers that could make that happen? And you know, there's the so-called big bang theory in October where the derivatives clearing houses switch from fed funds as a discount rate to the SOFR rate. So I think if we see, you know, that happen and it really does move the needle in terms of the volume that we're seeing on the derivative side, that certainly will help, um, but just to touch base again on your borrower question, I do think that it's been kind of a an odyssey, if you will, with talking to borrowers. Uh, about a year ago now, we were having and we have quarterly dinners with with our CRE borrowing community, and there was significant significant pushback um, on using silver as uh, as a replacement rate um that tone has changed fairly dramatically i think freddie has done wonders in terms of by issuing these sofa bonds um just showing folks that it can work and yet i do think there's a certain level of um information sharing that has to go on and i suspect that our you know we can't do the in-person uh borrower dinners anymore but we might want to start some um, work with webinars to our borrowers that talk specifically from the perspective of our issuers um, mm-hmm. and the various participants in the business including the servicers. Um, yeah, I, I think the servicers would be very happy with that.
0: I agree and I, I want to focus on what we're doing next coach to get us to the to the finish line. But how about the servicer community? Are they are they fully woke at this point and and are their vendors providing them the tools they need to deal with this new rate that will go into effect that will be composed and constructed differently than the existing rate. What are we hearing from them?
1: Yeah, we have heard from them a good deal. Um, As they are with most everything, Rick, they are all over this. Um, And I have to say, in speaking with them, it's one area where I am very, very comfortable that they've made excellent strides in preparing for the transition. Um, As you know, many of our services are also banking entities. So there's all sorts of pressures, if you will, um, to get this right, and they are being watched. And, and I think that even without that, though, they've been very, very forward-thinking. To the good, I think what I've heard from all of the servicers that if you think about how many systems are out there that they all utilize, they tell me there's as many as 32 different systems that this will impact as it relates to what it is that they do. Um, but that, you know, McCracken, for one, is well ahead of the game, um, and they're rolling out an updated version of the software that you know that the systems that that encompass the sofa transition in just a couple of weeks. So uh, I feel like they're they're really on top of it. I do think that they see those issues as to you know, similar things we talked about just earlier about what's in the document. So if you're using a compounded sofa rate and a term rate comes out, we need to maybe think about having that language incorporated into documents such that they can do that clearly without creating all sorts of, uh, of issues with the borrower and the borrowers, in fact, aware that that can happen.
0: Yeah, Exactly, without that back office technology in place, we will, we will struggle. Because of course, this doesn't just affect the rates in the documents, but it affects the underwriting and the structure of the back office behind the, the sausage making at the front end. So um, those are important constituencies for us. Um what I'd like to touch on now, and you mentioned it, least briefly, is like, what do we do now, Coach? What's the plan to get from here to there? And, and obviously, COVID has thrown a bit of a, uh, uh, a curveball into any planning. But, you know, what should we be doing as an industry? And what's CREPS going to do in its leadership role to help us get this transition done, which is now looming not that far away?
1: And it does Concern me especially, you know. I mean, we've all learned to live with COVID and webinars and the like. But there's nothing like having some of those in-person meetings when you put 20 people in a conference room and you hammer out some of the specific issues. Um, but having said that, I mean, we we've been trying to do as much as we possibly can in terms of the webinars and the panels and the you know the the group meetings that we're having via Zoom and elsewhere. Um, you know, to try to figure out, one, are the best practices document, that's a good place to start. There's some hard dates here, folks. Where are we relative to those hard dates? I think Raj and Syra have done yeoman's work as it relates to conventions. Can we all agree how, what we're going to call what and what that means? And to the extent that I think, Saira, you guys have made some good strides there, Is it something that would be easier to do without COVID? Absolutely. But I think that the conventions to me is sort of that next move in the, in trying to really drive home that this is going to happen and let's get Bloomberg and others in the queue to make sure that they can have conversations with all of our constituents via a webinar that says, here's how we think it's going to work. And I think when you start doing that earlier than later, the lawyers in the room, Um, both sell, sell side by side, starts to think more specifically, this is going to happen and it's going to happen shortly. So am I going to be able to run a bond or am I as a servicer, my system's in place? And, you know, do we have the tools that we need to actually work within a SOFR environment? And that's really a challenge. I think it's a little bit more challenging with COVID, but it's totally doable. We've all learned to live with Zoom and others.
0: Yeah, indeed. Yeah. I
1: would just,
2: you know, definitely agree. And just, uh, to reinforce, you know, per the best practices, the vendors need to be ready by the end of this year, which is really soon. So just echo what Lisa was saying. It's really important to get folks, you know, on Zoom together, I guess, um, to make sure that the vendors are ready to, you know, provide the calculations and the data fields needed to do, you know, in our case, perhaps compounding in advance, but a variety of different calculations across the industry.
0: Sire, you mentioned earlier about uh, whether the government may indicate in advance that LIBOR is going away, which I, I take it to mean that it would be an announcement that LIBOR will not be representative. Uh, that would actually help, wouldn't it, in terms of getting everyone focused?
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And I and you know I think that's really what it would do. I mean, it's not nothing particularly new per se, but. Having the SBA come out with a formal announcement, the LIBOR will like cease to exist December two thousand twenty one. I mean, that's you know that's the trigger, um, you know, for the fallback language. So it's pretty official at that point, and it will hopefully get folks who are not super focused on it to to really start paying attention.
0: The key actually is this fall to see if um, with the with the GSEs moving aggressively that the conventional market begins to um, print loan docs with with non-LIBOR index rates in it, which would be, I think, a huge step and would be a great tell as to whether we're actually gonna get this thing done on time here.
1: If you think about it, this fall is important for a variety of reasons. So if you see the derivatives market in the so-called big bang, right, there's one. You're gonna see the GSEs come out with a lot more as it relates to doing SOFR-based transactions. You know, there's two. And the fact that when I first read the FCA's sort of announcement, I almost fell off my chair because I thought it said that LIBOR ceases to exist, you know, in November, October, November. And I thought, oh my gosh. And so I do think that shock and awe that came from FCA there. And then we realized, well, but that is the trigger, right? That's the announcement. And so that's sort of, you know, off to the races, folks. We need to start moving, and we need to start moving fast. I think those things taken together, and hopefully the whole derivatives big bang creates a term structure sooner than later. I don't know when, but sooner. Then that's all good, um, and that and gets us where we need to be. But to your point, we need to make sure that everyone, every component within this chain is ready to move, because that could cause problems.
0: Exactly. Exactly exactly and, and you know I'm, I'm delighted to have you all entertain my trial lawyers but as an industry participant i'd like to see this transition go well and look i think uh, there's a lot to do uh, i think crefsy's done a fantastic job of carrying the torch um and getting the industry focused uh, that wouldn't have happened with, without you so I'm, I'm kudos to the the staff and the organization there's a lot to do and um you know, we've got our work cut out for us still to get from here to there uh, because we are definitely not going to need a new disruption of our industry come um, the winter of 2022. Well, I think we're done. Uh, listen, thank you, Lisa and Syra from Cressy for sharing your insights with our listeners. Please tune in to our live broadcast series, which can be found on our website as well as on YouTube. We cover a variety of topics with various regulators and industry participants on this and other important topics. Again, thanks for listening.